Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12:2. This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. There ain't no hurt like a church hurt. That's one of those truisms that is actually true. The pages of church history are littered with deep wounds, scandals, betrayals, abuses, hypocrisies, controversies, petty conflicts, and bitter schisms. It seems that the greatest glory, majesty, piety, courage, vision, humility, and grace the world has ever known has always been marred by the Judas kiss of difficulty, disgrace, and disappointment. It probably shouldn't surprise us. The Bible reminds us over and over again that the bastions of faith in days gone by were able to stand firm against the assaults of their enemies. But when attacks came from their own families and friends, that is when they were nearly undone. Remember David's plaintive cry? It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Psalm 55. What was true for David and all the other characters we meet on the pages of Scripture was equally true for the stalwarts of the church who followed them. A who's who of the heroes of the faith inevitably reveals a what's what of church hurts. The story of the church is a story of triumph over brokenness and victory over betrayal, whether we survey the age of the patristics, the days of the Reformation, or the annals of the modern church, we witness the same sad, yet ultimately triumphant saga. Charles Hedden Spurgeon was the most famous preacher in the world during the second half of the 19th century. In 1854, just four years after his conversion, then just barely 20 years old, he became the pastor of London's famed New Park Street Church, the successor to the great Puritans John Gill and John Rippon. The young preacher was an immediate success. The congregation quickly outgrew their building, moved to Exeter Hall, then to Surrey Music Hall. In these venues, Spurgeon frequently preached to audiences numbering in the tens of thousands, all in the days before electronic amplification. In 1861, the congregation moved into the newly constructed Metropolitan Tabernacle on the south side of the Thames. It quickly became the largest congregation in the world. With his rhetorical passion, literary eloquence, and stalwart orthodoxy, 
Spurgeon regularly drew standing-room-only crowds, including the likes of Prime Minister William Gladstone, Earl Shaftesbury, Florence Nightingale, several members of the royal family, as well as throngs of the common folk of London. His popularity created great demand for his printed sermons. In one year, a quarter of a million copies of his sermon tracts were distributed in the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. Prominent American newspapers printed the sermons every week and called him the greatest preacher of the age. Spurgeon published nearly 4,000 sermons and over a hundred books during his lifetime. He was the founder of more than 60 philanthropic institutions, including orphanages, schools, colleges, clinics, and hospitals, and he planted more than 20 mission churches. Throughout the crowded hours of his life and ministry, Spurgeon had more than his share of criticism. London's paparazzi tabloids were as brazen in his day as they are today. He was skewered for his style, his relationships, his private life, for his public pronouncements, but his long experience with those scandal sheets could hardly prepare Spurgeon for the hurt that he experienced during the downgrade controversy. In March 1887, Spurgeon published the first of two articles entitled The Downgrade in his monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. The articles traced the state of evangelical vitality from the Puritan age to the contemporary Victorian times, arguing that the church was in a downhill slide, tolerating spiritual weakness and doctrinal error. Our solemn conviction, he said, is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly trending downward. How much farther can they go? Uh, what doctrine remains to be abandoned? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. Alas, Many are returning to poisoned cups, toying with the deadly cobra of another gospel in the form of modern thought. A little plain speaking would do a world of good just now. These gentlemen desire to be let alone. They want uh, no noise raised. Of course, thieves hate watchdogs. But it is time that somebody should call attention to the way in which God is being robbed of his glory and man of his hope. A firestorm of controversy erupted, and it wasn't pretty. John MacArthur has observed Spurgeon, who for decades had been almost universally revered by evangelicals, was suddenly besieged with critics from within the camp. What he was arguing was diametrically opposed to the consensus of evangelical thought. All the trends were toward accommodation, amalgamation, and brotherhood. Suddenly, here was a lone voice, but the most influential voice of all, urging true believers to defend the gospel's distinctiveness. The church was neither prepared nor willing 
to receive such counsel, not even from the prince of preachers. Spurgeon was viciously attacked. The attacks were personal and cruel. Worse, they often came from among his friends, co-workers, even his former students. Spurgeon had long been the most visible and influential preacher in the English-speaking world, yet he now found himself to be unwelcome, a persona non grata. His denomination censored him for unbecoming schismatic behavior, for false testimony, and for petulance. He was brokenhearted. He was discouraged and disillusioned. His wife would later describe the episode as one of the most sorrowful seasons in his life and ministry. She called it that rifted lute from which even the lightest and most skillful fingers could scarcely draw a harmony from it. And I would fain not to awaken any of its discords. Its deepest hurt, she said, was that it was a terrible failure of friendship and sympathy. Eventually, history would vindicate Spurgeon, both in his assessment of the doctrinal downgrade and in his courageous yet gracious behavior throughout the controversy. Indeed, of all the participants in the conflict, only Spurgeon's name and books and ideas and character remain a part of the currency of the contemporary church. There ain't no hurt like a church hurt. But all too often, that is the cost of both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net or to adoringgod.com dot org.